you have to do something different, not just something good. You're not going to get conversational credit for doing your job. People are not going to talk about you executing what they paid you to do because that's kind of what the bargain was, you know? Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance. Scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. Today I'm talking to Jay Bear. Jay is the author of six books. His latest talk triggers is the one we're going to talk to him about today. He's also a social media marketing and customer experience guru and global public speaker. And his own talk trigger is that when you register at an event that he's due to speak at, you'll get the opportunity to download his app. And in his app, you get to pick the wonderful or awful suit that he will wear when he speaks at the event that you're attending. And when I'm working with clients, we work through a a process trying to identify the core customer and the main needs of the core customer and ultimately try to get into the things that would be brand promises with guarantees. And what we're trying to do there, if you overlay that with net promoter score, we're we're trying to deliver customer experiences which are remarkable for clients in that, that your clients will remark upon them. And that's really where talk triggers, I think, fits into the tools that I often use with clients so that you're doing something which is memorable and meaningful and has an emotional impact on clients, which is why they will then go and talk to their friends and family about it. So we get into some of the things that he's seen, some of the things he's done for clients. He's worked for over 700 global brands, including brands like Nike and 25 of the top largest companies in the world. And so he's got a fantastic amount of experience. I really enjoyed my conversation with Jay, and I'm sure you'll enjoy listening to it. Thanks. I am Jay Bear. I'm the founder of Convince and Convert, a seventh generation entrepreneur, author of six best-selling books, and the founder of five multi-million dollar companies. My firm, Convince and Convert, works with many of the world's most iconic brands to improve their marketing and customer experience. Great to be here. Jay, fantastic to have you. Seventh generation entrepreneur, do you say? Yes, sir. Yep. So your does that you you mean your great 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 great? When was that, and what was he doing? That would have been I don't know, like early eighteen hundreds. Uh, furniture store. Uh-huh. Owned a furniture store. Whereabouts? In uh, Nebraska, in the U.S. Yeah, middle of the country. Yes. Well, so he made his way to the middle of the country to open a furniture store. Yes, initially to Wisconsin, as I understand it, and then to Nebraska. And actually, fun fact. Uh, started off manufacturing caskets, which is a, a good recession-proof business, <laughs> uh, and then uh, uh, ended up going from caskets to furniture. In fact, the store is still there, Bears Furniture in York, Nebraska, still uh, still in business. And still owned by 
the same by the family? No. Not no longer owned by our family. We sold it not that long ago, maybe 30 years ago, something like that. My father, who would have uh, owned the store, is colorblind, and that's not not what you want in a furniture salesman. Uh, it's like this is going to look fantastic in your house. So no, it doesn't look good at all. Uh, and so, and so uh, we got we got out of the business, and he started a series of companies, and uh, and I have as well. And so is my so of my children. So uh, my son is now the eighth generation entrepreneur. And what business has your son started? Uh, he's still in university, but he has a fashion label. He started his own fashion line when he was about 15 and and uh, creates and sells T-shirts and hoodies and pants and shoes and hats and all stuff. Very good. And you said you'd founded, you were speaking so quick, five companies with five million pound turnover. Is that what you said? Or? Well, five five companies of at least a million pound okay, turnover. Okay, right, yeah. fine. What, were they in the same sort of line or have you been, have you been very eclectic? Primarily, mostly professional services. You know, I, I have been in sort of marketing advice and counsel for a really long time. We've done a couple other uh, types of companies, but primarily in professional services, it's sort of what I'm most comfortable in. I mean, I started doing this, Dominic, so long ago. When I started in digital in 1993, domain names were free. Like you could get whatever domain name you want and pay nothing for it because who would want to have a website? Like what would you do with a website? So it was a long time ago and uh, and I've been involved ever since. Well, you could have one, but nobody would come visit you because there was nobody, nobody was online. That's right. We actually, uh, fun fact, my partners and I, in my very first internet venture in 93, we registered a bunch of domains for free. And one day we get a call from Anheuser-Busch Brewing Company, uh, the largest brewery in the US. And they said, hey, we want to build the first ever website for Budweiser beer. And it says here that you own the domain name Budweiser.com. And we said, yeah, we do. So we'd like to have that. And we said, well, we bet you would, but we're not just going to give it to you. So we sold Budweiser.com to Anheuser-Busch. And again, this is 1993 for 50 cases of beer. <laughs> and, <laughs> it's true. We genuinely thought that we got like such a good deal, right? We're like, that's a lot of beer. And, oh, and, that's and it was in our, in our defense, it was bottles, not cans, right? So we're classy classy like that but hey i mean literally nobody wanted a site like i spent the first four years of my career convincing companies that having a website was a good idea and they would say things like well wait a second we're closed on saturday why would we want people to be able to get information about us on saturday when we're closed it was that kind of age right <laughs> things have changed just a little bit they can always send us a fax if they want to that's get right in touch. that's right yeah Brilliant. So Jay, what does, you said uh, Convince and Convert works with uh, some of the most iconic brands in the world. What what type of work do you do for them? So we primarily focus on digital strategy, content marketing strategy, social media strategy, and then customer experience strategy. So we're not an agency in the classic sense. We really are a boutique consultancy that works primarily with large organizations to sort of take their communications and customer experience to the next level. Okay. So I've been, I read and have been suggesting other people read Talk Triggers, your latest book, uh, since I got my hands on it a couple of months ago. How does that fit in with the work that you do? So some of the consulting work that we do at Convince and Convert is helping organizations improve their customer experience in pursuit of a word of mouth advantage. So we actually have a talk triggers development uh, strategic planning process that, that uh, we utilize for clients. Yeah. And what sort of, uh, can, are you allowed to talk about some of the examples of work you've done? 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, across all different types of uh, services, we, we work with uh, a lot of interesting companies you, you're probably aware of, uh, Oracle and Cisco, um, Hilton Hotels, the Grand Ole Opry, PF Chang's United Nations. We have tons of really interesting clients. One of our favorite projects on the talk triggers side, the, the word of mouth and customer experience side is there's a company in um, Canada called Superior Glove and, and they make work gloves and they make a dazzling array of work gloves. Uh, I had no idea there were more, so many kinds. They're really good at R&D. So whatever your very specific job is, they probably have a work glove for it. So if you're like a left-handed vampire that works on an oil rig, they've got a special glove just for you. It's, it's wild. Very high quality. They compete against a number of other companies, primarily from Asia, who offer work gloves, uh, lower quality, lower cost. And so they retained my team and I to help their customers understand that they are, in fact, a North American company, a Canadian company, uh, higher quality uh, a little bit of a pizzazz uh, angle and really just create conversations about a topic that is usually fairly mundane, which is work gloves. Even if you are a worker who who relies upon gloves to protect your hands, et cetera, it's sort of like, yeah, whatever. These are just my gloves. It's not a real topic of conversation. So we decided to change that. So we went through the entire Talk Triggers word of mouth strategy process. And what we rolled out for them, and I, and I love this idea, is the back of every pair of superior gloves has a logo, their logo, and then it has a little uh, designation about are these uh, safe for acid or heat or or freezing. It is sort of a little system there that that they use. Today, when you scratch that little patch and <laughs> smell it, it smells like maple syrup. So they're <laughs> maple syrup scented work gloves. So you can imagine you're on the job site. You're like, hey, Lenny, how can we keep smelling your hand all the time? It's like, dude, these smell like maple syrup. Superior glove. They're from Canada, you know. So it's uh, it's been great. Aha. Uh-huh. And so direct line of sight to revenue enhancement? It's tr- a little bit tricky in their case because they only sell to distributors. So the attribution model is is harder there. But what we typically do in a word of mouth program is we measure talkability more so than we measure revenue. So we say, of all the customers who have experienced this talk trigger, in this case, the work gloves, how many of them report that they have told a story about it to somebody else? And and clearly, if enough stories are told, um, revenue will, will absolutely follow. One of the classic examples along those lines, Dominic, this is not a client of ours, but certainly a tale that we that we describe in the book, as you know, is Doubletree Hotels by Hilton. So they give out a a warm chocolate chip cookie upon check-in to every guest of the hotel chain. And they've been doing this now for 30 years, which is an incredible staying power for a, a word of mouth advantage. So today and tomorrow and the next day, every day, they hand out about 75,000 cookies a day, which is a lot of chocolate chips, no question. But we did a survey on this because we really wanted to understand when we wrote the book how impactful is this differentiator? And it turns out that 34%, I'm not even sure this stat is in the book, but 34% of their customers, of the guests of the hotel, have told a story about that cookie specifically. Well, the companion finding is that Doubletree, despite being a global hotel chain and an incredibly competitive market, spends almost nothing at all on advertising. Nothing. Because the cookie 
is the ad and the guests are the sales and marketing department. And when you do this right, when you use customer experience to create conversations, that is the benefit. Because I'll tell you that I don't care what business you're in. The best way to grow any business is for your customers to grow it for you. But that doesn't just happen naturally unless you somehow have some crazy secret sauce, which typically doesn't happen. And if it does, it won't last. You have to do something that customers notice and talk about. Uh, and, and that's got to be something other than just fulfilling the product or service that they've paid you to do. Well, it's interesting because after having read the book, I was in Boulder, Colorado recently with a client and I was staying in a hotel, not, uh, not Doubletree. And I went in and they had, um, they had sort of a heated cabinet in reception off to one side full of cookies nice. but rather than the guy behind reception give me a cookie because that's what i'm assuming happens in double tree i got there sort of nine o'clock at night and i had the sneaky suspicion that these cookies might have been sitting on the warming plate all day <laughs> right. and so right so it's another one of these examples where a competitor copies them but doesn't quite get the essence of it and so they just do it so badly it actually works against them because I think if I understand your story correctly, Dominic, it was it was uh, sort of a self-serve, right? If you want a cookie, take a cookie. Yeah, and that's the huge problem, right? So I talk about this on stage when I give presentations about talk triggers. Everybody has been to a hotel that has some sort of self-serve something, right? It might be a basket of apples uh, at reception or, or a basket of bananas by the elevator or whatever. And I ask people when I, when I do this presentation to raise their hand if they've ever told a story about that. Never a single hand. Like it's a waste of good citrus, right? A self-serve pile is not a story. The reason it works for Doubletree is that they have an oven in every single hotel. They bake them there. And then the, the front desk person goes, gets you a, a hot, fresh cookie, puts it in a paper sleeve, and then hands it to you. The hand-to-hand -hand pass takes it from a bullet point to an experience. And in almost every case, if you want to actually create conversations amongst your customers, it has to be an experience. It can't be something that they passively kind of, you know, just notice. That's usually not strong enough to trigger those downstream conversations. It's so funny, isn't it? That most of the time when some, when you see a pile of apples or a pile of bananas, you don't touch it because you're not quite convinced <laughs> right. how it's long like, they've been there. Where does banana come from? Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. am I supposed to eat it? Am I not? And it's, but it's that, you know, even if somebody gave you a banana or gave you an apple or gives you a cookie, it's the fact that that person has to go to the effort to do it that adds value to the thing. And so I love it when people, you see companies trying to copy somebody else's advantage and they just don't get it. They try to do it cheaper and it just, it just is a complete waste of time. You know, every, every once in a while you, you, you can, or you, you can get copied and it kind of takes the stuffing out of it, but usually not. Uh, you go back to the hotel industry. A few years ago, you may remember Weston Hotels rolled out this idea of the heavenly bed. And their talk trigger, their, their sort of talkable advantage was going to be that they had the most comfortable beds in any hotel chain uh, and really luxurious mattresses and amazing linens and comforters and duvets and all that stuff. And so they put a bunch of muscle behind it to convince people that we've got the best beds in the world. Well, that's a good idea, right? And, and is conceivably a really talkable advantage. But all the other hotel chains are like, oh, dude, that's too good of an idea. Uh, and so they quickly matched it. And so then Marriott's like, no, man, we got good beds too. And then Hyatt did a deal with sleep number or something. So now we got sleep number beds. And and so they all kind of rushed into the vacuum, uh, so much so that Weston could no longer 
uh, hold on to that advantage and they had to pull it back. But that doesn't happen very often. Usually, because most companies, in fact, the overwhelming majority of companies are so manifestly terrible at word of mouth that if you just if you just kind of do a thing and stick to it, you don't have to worry about competition too much. And where it fits in for me, I think, is that you'll be familiar with net promoter score, you know, so we're looking, we're looking for clients to get nines give us nines and tens. Mm -hmm. And that might be enough for them to carry on purchasing from us. But in the example there with the bed, I was, I immediately thought hotel beds comfortable. Aren't they supposed to be comfortable? It's got to be pretty damn comfortable for you to be like, let me tell you a story about it. I want it to be as good or better than at home. And so a hotel that says, Hey, our beds are comfortable. I'm thinking what you didn't have comfortable beds before. So like you were, you were, you, wonder, yeah. you were ripping me off for 10 years. Now, all of a sudden you've stumbled across the fact that your beds are shit and you've decided to make them adequate. Exactly. Even if it was the most comfortable bed in the world, I don't know. I'm not sure I notice. It's not, it's a bit like the free bananas. Like it's somebody's good idea, but I don't think it's something I'm going to go and talk about. Yeah. Partially because it's so close to the core value proposition. Right. And a lot of this is just brain science is, is, the human condition, right? All of us and every customer we all ever have, we're all wired the same way, which is that we are we are wired to discuss things that are different and ignore things that are average. And, and so your point is well-founded that because we expect a hotel to have a bed, that's the whole premise of a hotel, and we expect the hotel bed to be at least adequately comfortable, if you're going to use a comfortable bed as your word of mouth generator, it has to be super duper incredibly comfortable, right? Now, is that possible? It is possible. Is it hard? For sure. Restaurants have the same challenge, right? You don't tell that many stories about um, food quality at a restaurant because you expect it to be good, right? You have to you have to have really, really, really good food uh, in order to create conversations. And, and increasingly, you know that a lot of restaurants have gone to what they call uh, molecular gastronomy, right? Where they take uh, one food and they do something to it. So they make it look like a different food and they're going to freeze dry a cantaloupe or whatever. It's like the whole, there's a whole thing going on there, right? It's a whole movement. And partially, yes, it's interesting from a food science standpoint, like how can you change the form of one food to mimic another food? And, and all of that is fascinating. But it is also incredibly powerful from a word of mouth standpoint, because yes, you probably had a delicious cantaloupe in many places that you're not gonna be like, hey, this cantaloupe is so much better than any cantaloupe I've ever had in my life. But if you have a cantaloupe that looks like a cigar, that's a story, right? Because you never had that before. So there's a huge marketing advantage to that kind of, of restaurant that really transcends the actual quality of, of the food or the presentation. Well, and in that case, you're you could also that there's an Instagrammable food. Oh, for there, sure, isn't there? Right. For so, sure. So the story is being told, not just I meet Bob down the pub and tell him about this cigar cantaloupe cigar I had. It's just it's pictures of it everywhere. And hugely important because as we talk about in the book, talk triggers fifty percent of word of mouth takes place online, and and certainly online word of mouth is easier to spread because someone can just forward the post or share it or what have you. Offline word of mouth is on the whole, more persuasive, because typically if you engage in offline word of mouth with somebody, you have some measure of relationship with that person. So that trust bond, that credibility, if you will, matters more. So a random social media post I might find interesting and be like, oh, interesting. But if you tell me, I'm going to believe it more because I know you. So offline is a little more persuasive. Online has the ability to grow. 
and but you're exactly right. I mean, lots of of smart operators now are being very thoughtful about the Instagrammable nature of their offerings, right? And, and sort of building that into the experience from the beginning. It's very, very wise. And one of the things that struck me when you were talking about uh, food and restaurants was that in my experience, I'm not sure I've, I might have talked to people about the food, but mostly I've talked about service experiences that struck me as amazing. And in fact, to that point, there's a new, a relatively new research paper from Yelp that came out. Uh, it's not in the book because it came out after we wrote the book that proves that exact point, Dominic. It is, it is unbelievable. It was, don't quote me on this because I don't have it in front of me, but I believe it was six to one, maybe even eight to one, the ratio of five-star reviews on Yelp that mentioned service versus the ratio of five-star reviews that mentioned food in the restaurant category. Right. So for a couple of reasons, not everybody writes a review. You have to be compelled to write a review. What is a review? It's online word of mouth. You have to be compelled to do so. When are you compelled? When something you did not expect to happen happened. What is the easiest way to exceed expectations with food in a restaurant? No. With unbelievable service in a restaurant? Yes. And that shows itself in the data. So you're, you're exactly right. It is 100% true. Well, it's that surprise and excite, isn't it? It's uh, Daniel Kahneman's peak last thing, you know. And if you're a service business, you've got to keep surprising and delighting your customers because it'll drive word of mouth, but it'll also inoculate them against potentially future poor service experience. That's right. Yeah. You, you sort of build that that well of of goodwill. Uh, no question about that. And and look, I talk about this a lot, that one of the best ways to create word of mouth is to be disproportionately good at service because customers' expectations for service is so low and getting lower all the time, right? So if you think about if you think about word of mouth is about exploiting an expectation gap. The gap between great service and expected service is so huge that if you can fit your business in there, it can be a huge competitive advantage. Again, the, some of the research I'd seen suggests that it doesn't need to be that much. It just needs to be consistently better than your largest competitor. Yeah. And then you, you know, customers will slide to you over time in a commodity space. And, and of course, oper- you know, we do a lot of customer service consulting as well at Convince and Convert. And, and of course, operationally and at scale, it's easier to say on a podcast, you know, be better than your competitors at customer service. It's harder to execute on that, especially for large organizations, because you've got people being people and it's hard to, you know, achieve a measure of consistency. And all of those things are true. But it is worth the effort, in my estimation. And so, what are some of the uh, what are some of the steps that people should go through? And then maybe some of your favorite examples of talk triggers that people have pulled out the bag. One of the you know, the keys is to understand truly how important word of mouth is to your business. And I think everybody acknowledges, at least anecdotally, that word of mouth is important. I've yet to find a business owner or a manager who's like, "Yep, yeah, we don't we don't really care about word of mouth. Not our thing." I, I, I don't hear that. But I don't think we really understand just how important it is. Word of mouth influences 50% of all purchases, and it influences 91% of B2B purchases. So you think about what the economic consequences of that are. It's pretty extraordinary. And for major purchases, word of mouth is the number one decision-making criteria, and on and on and on. I probably have 30 stats, right? It is much more important to the success and health of your business than most people acknowledge. And here's the part that is so criminal. Fewer than 1% of businesses have an actual word of mouth strategy. 
So we know it's super important. We may not know exactly how important it is, but yet we just take it for granted. We just assume that customers will talk about us. But why do we assume that? Why would they do that? Uh, we have convinced ourselves, and this is the first step in sort of correcting this, we've convinced ourselves that competency will create conversation. And it doesn't. That's not the way people behave. You have to do something different, not just something good. And so that's kind of the first step is to understand that, like, look, you're not going to get conversational credit for doing your job. People are not going to talk about you executing what they paid you to do because that's kind of what the bargain was, you know? Well, there's no creation of a positive emotional energy if your promise is met. Right. It's like, yep, thanks. It is the ultimate, it's the ultimate uh, C, right? You're like, yep, that's, uh, that's average. Neutral. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's the first thing is to understand you've got to actually do something different. One of my favorite examples, uh, and it's so easy to understand, it's a small business example, is a, a restaurant called Skip's Kitchen. You may remember this example from the book. And Skip and his wife own a, a restaurant called Skip's Kitchen in Sacramento, California. And Skip used to work for a, a chain of, of restaurants there and decided to go on his own. They've been in business now over 10 years. They've spent a grand total of $0.00 and 0 cents on advertising and marketing ever, ever never spent anything on advertising and marketing, yet there's a line to get in almost every day. Now, do they have good food? Yes, they do. But again, good food is sort of what you expect from a restaurant. That's not terribly talkable. But they do have a talk trigger. Uh, and a talk trigger, as defined in the book, is an operational choice that is designed to create conversations. And they have made an operational choice. It is designed to create conversations. Here's how it works. So it skips. It's a counter service restaurant. You approach the counter. There's a menu board up there. And you, you say, I want uh, two patty melts and a, a chocolate shake and an onion rings. And then when your food is ready, they bring it out to your table. Like We've all been to restaurants like that. That's not noteworthy in particular. But after you order and before you pay, that's where the talk trigger is deployed. The counter person um, who's working the register there pulls out a deck of playing cards and fans them out face down in front of you. <laughs> Says, Dominic, pick a card. You're like, uh, okay. And you pick a card. And if you get a joker, your entire order is free, whether you've uh, placed an order for just yourself or, or an entire group of folks. Now, on average, about four people a day win this game. And when they win, they go crazy. Uh, they're calling their mom. They're putting reviews on Google and Yelp and TripAdvisor, you know, confetti cannon, the whole thing is quite a to-do. But you know, four people a day play, win, but dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of people a day play. And again, it's an experience, right? It's not just, uh, you know, put your business card in a fishbowl and we'll call one person a month to tell them they won free lunch, right? You're actually picking a card. You get to play the game. And it is so successful that in Sacramento, despite the fact they have a giant neon sign out front that says Skip's Kitchen, most people call it that Joker restaurant. And they don't spend any money on advertising. The, the, you know, is the food good? Yeah. But what gets the conversation is this game that they play. One of my favorite quotes in business is from the guy who started uh, Geek Squad, Robert Stevens. And it goes like this. Advertising is a tax paid by the unremarkable. Advertising is a tax paid by the unremarkable. Now, that's not entirely true. There is a time and a place for advertising, but it is also true that many of the most successful businesses in the world advertise the least because their customers do that for them. And isn't that something that we should all strive for? Yeah. People like Apple, not 
spending so much on advertising. Yeah, I mean they do they do advertise mostly around new products and but if you think about Apple's share of revenue that's devoted to advertising it is microscopic. Just going back to your example of the gloves, right? Cuz that seems I like it, but it's counterintuitive because I guess the company with the glove company were thinking how can we add some value to the glove that the wearer of the gloves might get from our gloves and making them smell like maple syrup. It makes you, you know, it's that operational decision because you've said, right, we're going to make our gloves smell like maple syrup. Is there any value to that? No, but people bloody talk about it. Well, and value isn't always necessary to have a talk trigger. So talk about generosity. There's five types of talk triggers. Talk about generosity is one, and that's a free cookie or you get to win lunch if you pull the joker. Talk about attitude is one of the other types of talk triggers, and that's really what the maple syrup gloves are, where you, where you where you do something that's left of center, you do something that's ironic or funny or interesting or just weird, and that's what's used to create the conversation. So all five of those, uh, I'll tell you the other ones just since we're talking about it, you've got talkable generosity, talkable speed, so faster than customers expect, talkable usefulness, talkable empathy, and then talkable attitude. So all five can work. Some work better for certain companies. Some work better for, for certain circumstances. The one you see most often in the wild, because it's typically the easiest to implement, is talkable generosity. So customers expect X. We give them X plus Y. That's usually the easiest one to say, oh, I can see how that would work in my company. But it is by no means the only way to do it, nor is it necessarily the most effective way to do it. It just is the most common. Yeah, we, we used to get, the word of mouth we would get drive at Rackspace was when our T's and C's said, like everybody else's, you have to notice that we failed to deliver the service that you're buying from us. And if you do notice that we failed, you have to ring your account manager within 28 days and uh, raise a ticket. And if we agree with you, we will give you the money back. And our T's and C's said the same thing. But what the account managers would do is if we did have a failure, they'd ring up and they'd say, hey, Jay, we noticed you were down yesterday. You might not have noticed. But we've also worked out that, you know, we're going to give you a $35, $35 credit. So we're just ringing up to say, Thanks, sorry, we were down and here's $35. So great. And people were like, you're shitting me. Like none of my IT providers have ever rung me about anything. And then some people would say things like, don't give me the credit because my, it will flip out my accounts. People will absolutely, I will, they will have, <laughs> they won't be able to, they won't be able the to track it. The will be yeah. wrong by $35 yeah. forever. So that was the type of thing that we did. And it, you know, I look back and I can see how it fits into your model. But at the time, it just seemed like the right thing to do. Yes. Yes. Well, and that's, and that's sometimes the, the happiest accident, right? Where, where you just do something because it fits the, the culture of your organization. And then it turns out to be this, this propellant for conversations, which is uh, fantastic, right? And, and sometimes you do it Sometimes you do it on purpose or you're really thinking it through like we did the Superior Glove. And sometimes you just sort of end up in that place. But either way, uh, it's great. In fact, Amazon does this now. AWS uh, has not dissimilar from your plan where when AWS adds capacity, right? So they add servers, network capacity. It reduces the unit cost. And in certain cases, they just send you an email that says, you know, your bill used to be this. Now it's this and it's lower. And it's like, congratulations, right? We just reduced your bill. Like, Wait, what? You just... You just proactively reduce my bill. Like, that's amazing. Like the gloves, what's your other, I mean, you, you, one way you may, or, you may or may not have been involved in the, of the creation, but what are some of the other, what are some of your other favorites? Because I guess, because this is what you do for a living, you must be hyper attuned to them. 
Yeah, I collect them like baseball <laughs> cards. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what mine is, right? So, so, you know, relevant question, like if you believe in this, what's your own talk trigger? So, um, for the speaking side of my business, I give lots and lots of presentations every year around the world. And my customer is meeting planners, right? People who who book speakers for for conferences and corporate events. And they have seen dozens, if not hundreds of speakers in their life, many of them quite good. Uh, you're not going to get a conversation around what a great speech because they've seen great speeches. So I, uh, when I'm on stage, I always wear a plaid suit and I have a dozen or so uh, very vibrant plaid suits. That is, that is my thing, right? That is my costume. That was always kind of noteworthy, but, but not really conversational until we turned it into an experience. We talked earlier about the difference between somebody handing you a warm cookie and just a pile of bananas. So we decided to do that in my business. So now when a meeting planner hires me to give a presentation, about a week before the event, they get sent an email with a link to a website which is dressjbear.com, dressjbear.com. And they go on that site and it has pictures of all the different suits that I own and they get to pick which suit I will wear. And then it actually goes on my calendar so I know what to pack. <laughs> and then they're super pumped. And then when they introduce me, they always say, oh, we picked this suit out. Then they tell their friends, yeah, that's the guy you get to pick his suit. It's been a, an enormous success and a good example of talkable attitude, right? It's just a little different, a little different, a little dynamic, a little funny, a little interesting, a little quirky. Um, it's been really great. Well, you know what? It's also uh, one of the things that I like triggers for me is that sweating the small details. I don't know where it fits in. Maybe it's the attitude thing. Cause uh, I went to visit uh, Simon Bitliff, uh, one of the earlier guests in the podcast and his PA rang me the day before I was due to go and visit him. And she said, I'm just making sure you're going to be here at three o'clock. And I just want to know what your hot beverage of choice is so I can get it ready for you. And just to give you the instructions on where to park, if you just park next to the red carpet and follow it to our front door, that will get you to us. <laughs> and it was just, and it was just that, you know, I could have had an email, but she rang me and she said, you know, you know, what, what, nice. what, you know, can I make you tea or coffee? And it's just that sweating the small details makes you believe that everything else they say, every other promise that they make will get kept because they can be bothered to get the details right at the beginning. Yeah, I love that. That's a really good example. So if there's a couple of questions to ask you, what is it you know now that you maybe look back over your life and think, oh, I wish I'd known that then? Well, I, I think just in, in terms of this conversation, like I know now how crucial word of mouth is to the success of every business. And for a long time, I fell into the same trap that everybody falls into, which is, yeah, you kind of, yeah, word of mouth is important. Like, you, you know, you're not going to argue the point, but didn't fully understand uh, how important it really is. And, and I wish I would have figured that out earlier because I would have been doing some of these talk trigger type things um, a lot earlier in, in my career, for sure. Okay. And other than people picking up a copy of Talk Triggers, which they should do, what other books or, uh, or maybe even podcasts have you listened to along the way on your journey that you've thought, man, that was great? 
Yeah, a couple things. I, let me just mention on the book also, if you go to talktriggers.com, there is a tremendous amount of free resources there. Uh, there's research, there's infographics, there's videos, there's discussion guides, there's PowerPoint presentations, all of it completely free. So if you're interested in the topic and, and want to have a, a book group or convince your boss, all that stuff is there. Also, it would be weird if a book about talk triggers didn't have a talk trigger. And the book does. It works like this, Dominic. So if you buy the book, and you don't love it unconditionally, I will buy you any other book that you want. Uh, you want a first edition Bible? We'll figure it out. <laughs> uh, so far, so far of the many, many, many tens of thousands of books that we've sold, we've had two redemptions on that offer. One guy calls me and says, Jay, I didn't like the book. Uh, there weren't enough case studies. And I'm like, okay, I think that's weird because there's like 32 case studies, but okay. And he wanted like a hundred dollar book on like COBOL programming or whatever. I'm like, all right, fine. So I bought him a book. And then another guy called and said, uh, I didn't like the book. There are too many case studies. And I thought, hey, have you met this other guy? It's <laughs> like, feels like you guys should get in a room and, uh, and argue this out. And I said, yeah, I'd never heard about this, uh, this objection. This business book has too much evidence in it. Uh, <laughs> I understand why that'd be a real problem for you. So uh, bought him a book as well. But uh, that is my my uh, that is our talk trigger. Talk about generosity. You don't love it? I'll buy you any book in the world that you want. And I will. And, and, well, and also you've got a podcast series wrapped wrapped around the book as well. Yes. Yeah. Talk Trigger Show. You can find it uh, as a podcast or also on YouTube. Speaking of YouTube, uh, one of my favorite uh, resources, my good friend Andrew Davis, who's a, a terrific uh, marketing consultant, has an awesome YouTube series called The Loyalty Loop. Uh, weekly videos that are five, eight minutes long. Spectacular. He is great, really high production value. He used to be in the television business. So it's very, very nicely done. And he is a genius and a good friend. So I would look at the loyalty loop. Other books that have had a huge impact on me, uh, a book that we actually cite in Talk Triggers is called Different. The book is called Different from Young Me Moon, who was the head of the Harvard Business School. She has a terrific small little book uh, about marketplace differentiation that inspired some of our thinking about talk triggers. Also, one of my favorite books, just from a, a sort of personal development standpoint, uh, is from a good friend, Rory Vaden. It's called Procrastinate on Purpose. It's, it's one of the best books on, uh, on sort of time management and productivity. And uh, I really, really like it. It's awesome. Procrastinate on Purpose. I like that. I think that that is, um, it changes your perception on procrastination. Definitely. Yes. And I know that I know I can do a piece of work. If I, you know, if I, if I need to do a PowerPoint deck, I know I could do it in an hour if I'm up against the wall. So rather than waste, having read that book, rather than waste the whole day avoiding doing it, I just say, right, I'm going to do that at seven o'clock tonight whilst I'm doing, you know, and while, when I have to do it, cause I'm up against the deadline and I'm going to take the day off. Yeah. Well, I have to do and it. And I'm going yeah. to deliberately do something else. That is, that is a, it's a fantastic book. Definitely. Jay, thank you very much indeed for all of your, all of your, uh, your shared wisdom. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much. It was great. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. And there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read 
on all things relating to scaling up high performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me. Share your questions and comments, and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.